Welcome back to Left Anchor. I'm Ryan Cooper. And I'm Alexi the Greek. So we have a special uh, interview uh, today that we're going to break up into two sections. Um, we're, We're talking to Brad Evans, a philosopher. We'll give him a proper introduction here in a minute. Um, but in this first uh, episode, we uh, talk about um, violence and the political functions of violence and, you know, various other aspects of how violence functions in modern society. And in the second episode, we'll talk about fascism uh, in some detail, since that's something he's paid a lot of attention to. And um, so... I just want to say it's it's uh, really a privilege to have Brad on, and, and we mentioned him in a previous episode uh, and his book, Disposable Futures, which a number of listeners were interested in. And, uh, Joe, keep an eye out for the new book that he, that he has um, that just came out. So we'll, we'll talk about that in the episode as well. But, uh, yeah, I think you're in store for, for a good conversation. Uh, you might need to rewind and listen to uh, bits of it uh, a few times because there's a lot... A lot going on, a lot to process, and a lot to think about. Um, yeah, that's that's what I think. Great. So let's get to the interview. We're in, introducing uh, uh, Brad Evans here, political philosopher uh, from the UK, um, professor of uh, political violence and aesthetics at the University of Bath. Is that correct? It's a new position, right? Fairly? Yes, that's right, Jack. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, editor of the uh, Histories of Violence section, as well as the Arts and Critical Theory section of the uh, Los Angeles Review of Books. Uh, you've, you've written nearly a dozen books, uh, authored, co-authored, and and so on, um, including one we mentioned in a previous uh, a previous podcast, which we'll link in our description. And you've just got a, a new book, which is coming out like tomorrow, I believe. I yeah. got it right here. Or in the next day or two. Uh, it's called Violence, uh, Humans in Dark Times, which you wrote with uh, Natasha Leonard, um, a, a series of interviews uh, with uh, you know writers, thinkers, and artists from Elaine Scarry to Oliver Stone. Yeah, but- sound mm-hmm. about right. Yes, that sounds about right. <laughs> yeah, so I think it's a, I, I think it's a, my uh, my daughter was recently asked in school about you know what does her father do and she says he's a, he's a doctor of violence and <laughs> makes up words in the hope they make sense. Right? So, I think uh, yeah, you can't fool a child. So she kind of and she keeps asking me why does every book you you write have violence in the title? So I think uh, she's she's onto something. So. Uh, lovely. Um, what th- I thought thought we'd start out um, being kind of. Uh, an academic who specializes on violence and uh, political violence, a political philosopher. Um, so many people talk about what they think violence is in a way that is befitting of our kind of modern atomistic uh, liberal world, right? They, they tend to, to think that it's uh, in, always on the individual level. It's, it's usually associated with biology and mental illness, uh, psychology. Uh, so, you know, when, when people think of political violence, uh, I don't know that they understand uh, how applicable that is to, say, um, mass shootings or, or any, you know, domestic violence, any number of things that uh, tend to be thought of on these individual levels. So, so maybe we could start off with uh, your thoughts on the parameters or contours of violence. It, it might be from your work, um, something a bit broader than people might otherwise think. 
Yeah, I, th I think we can begin um, with, you know, um, an appreciation that violence is a complex phenomenon which kind of defies neat description. And that's certainly the case when we talk about what constitutes a political act of violence. Now, we have this uh, very conventional narrative which all kind of modernist projects kind of subscribe to that, you know, we kind of emerged from this state of nature where humans were once just completely unruly, barbarous animals and we massacred one another with willful intent and then the more civilized we become, the more we learn to civilize violence and we push it to the margins of our society. And in that sense, violence either appears something as kind of politically exceptional, i.e. there's a breakdown of politics, therefore violence kind of occurs. Or, as you say, violence gets reduced to the level of individual psychosis and there is that sense then of you know two different regimes of violence one at a macro level which is recognized as sometimes necessary for security or the preservation of a political order and the violence which tends to occur internally is especially within democratic societies is the result of a fa failure of an individual's kind of aptitudes and performances and so on now one of the things which i've tried to address in my work is I guess the politics concerning the naming of an act of something as political violence in itself. So it's very easy, for instance, to say, well, you know, an event like 9-11 is political violence, right? Or, or men on battlefields is political violence. But how do we understand, for instance, the ways in which certain acts are designated within our imagination as being you know, political violence, mm. and then other forms of human action and, and interaction as being not political violence. Why, for instance, is homeless not seen as political violence, mm. right? Whereas, of course, as we know in the context of the United States of America, a great deal of homeless people are ex-war veterans, right? So the war doesn't end for them. So, or indeed, a great deal of domestic abuse happens when soldiers come home from war, right? So mm. this kind of, these neat linear distinctions between political violence and non-political violence, I think, are very difficult to sustain once we actually look even just the the raw empirical facts of what constitutes the violence and to me then it's 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 less important to ask a question about you know um what actually is political violence but it's to look at the way in which narratives of violence either function or don't function politically whether we demand kind of an exceptional response and we recognize it's a collective problem or whether we reduce it something to a level of individual pathology so i think that's there's a there's a politics to the political naming of political violence, which is what, what really concerns me. Right, which, which suggests maybe the, the paucity of imagination is not merely about what violence is, but what politics is, right? Yes, completely, yeah. And, and we know then there's a great deal of violence which takes place discursively in the cancellation of something as an act of political violence, right? Um, or, you know, or, or why, for instance, does, do certain actions and, you know, gain so much attention as being... You know, a political imperative, but others don't. You know, why do some lives matter in terms of you know the violence inflicted upon them, whereas other lives don't? And I think there's, there's that that takes us into the order of the political, in which we can understand then you know what matters and what doesn't matter to us as political subjects. And that's quite a tricky thing to unpack in terms of the discourse, you know, discursive reasoning, and and what's actually uh, operating to to frame those narratives. Uh, you know, for, for most people, especially you know workers who spend all their time uh, at work and then watch a few TV programs um, to explain critical theory and the Frankfurt School is is, is a bit it's a bit uh, it's a bit much to to try to show how people's um, 
understandings of, of what these terms mean and, and, and what they should do to understand just an, an incident of violence they see being broadcast. Um, what, how, how does one start? Because I think part of the project has to be, and, and I assume part of um, part of your work, both in academia and in, in um, making these things um, popularly known, is to help um, you know the people writ large uh, access um, ways to um, readily understand and grasp these complex uh, structures, right? This this interplay of of politics in in the everyday, in media, in uh, in the seats of government, and and in global capitalism. So uh, that's a lot going on. How how do we start with with all of that? Well, you know, there's certainly some truism in you know the, the idea that only the bourgeoisie has time to read Karl Marx, right? Yes. <laughs> you know, the, the everyday worker, right? You know, ha- they don't have the time to engage with the Grundrisse, right? They don't, you know. So, yeah. so in that sense, I think there's this, you know, and and you see, you know, people who often now work in two, three jobs a, a week, right, to just sustain a family. You know, they know life is difficult and tough, and the last thing they want to do is come home sometimes, switch on the news, and hear the story about a refugee, right? So, and I think part of the order of politics today, actually, is precisely the waging of precarious populations against the globally vulnerable. So we see this happening constantly, the pitting of the two. So there's something in that. Now, in terms of your point about how do we then educate about violence, I think... The educating demands concerning violence is one of the most definitive problems of our times. Mm. How do we develop, you know, the necessary ethical tools and educative practices to deal with the multiple forms in which violence takes? Now, for me as an educator, I think we need to have a realization that if often if somebody doesn't understand the critical theory you're putting forward, it's not necessarily a problem with the person who's receiving the information. It's more a problem with you in terms of how you present that information because there's no universal language when it comes to critical theory. And I think one of the things then which I've really tried to do with my work is to learn to kind of say the same story to multiple audiences in different ways, whether, you know, it's okay publishing an article in a journal of metaphysics and great you know you're speaking to a very particular audience but how can you translate that argument whether you're talking to somebody who's just you know sat down the pub and has got very little understanding of the history of critical theory or even to a 15 or 16 year old kid you know so I think though the challenges for academics I think is to learn to say the same thing to multiple audiences using different grammatical tools and and that to me is what you know what we need to do in terms of as educators now on to your other points then but okay, you know, what are the pedagogical influences which um, shapes people's attitudes and perceptions? And I think, to me, critical theory is one of many possible tools we can draw upon. And part of the thing which I've tried to do with, for instance, the LA Review of Books is to say, you know, we need to take much more seriously the power of the arts. And mm. People who engage in the arts as having as equal and important voice over the influence of people's understanding of the world. You know, I recently watched once again um, the HBO season The Wire. And it's just phenomenal in terms of its critique of violence, which we know, you know, has far greater impact than any book that I'm ever going to write over the way people understand and perceive structural violence. So I think we need to give much more credit to cultural producers 
in terms of the ways in which they are, they can be a very positive pedagogical force for bringing about much more peaceful relations with people. And to have that truly transdisciplinary conversation is what's something which is what we really need, I think, in terms of you know developing this critique of violence. Absolutely, I, I really enjoy uh, that aspect of your work that points out not just how uh, media and and the arts are destructive in the ways in which power. Uh, makes a spectacle of violence and in terms of how um, we are kind of inured to violence, uh, whether it's through the news or, or, um, you know, various forms of of entertainment. But uh, on the other hand, the arts can be a place where we find beauty and and hope and, and like you say, even be educated um, in our affects, in our understandings. And um, I I think it's important when we, uh, I don't know, talk about so many complex problems like this that people don't lose those resources to, to feel like there is a way, there is hope uh, to combat it. It, it just seems um, uh, there's enough apathy and and um, um, overworked um, kind of subjective formation going on that, that we need uh, so much to start, I think, with giving people that that will to, to think through these things. Yeah. Um maybe like pivoting slightly this this uh uh brings up a question that i had uh you know reading through your you know you're talking about like popular media and you know i'm not a philosopher or a professor i'm i'm the like i just write or all i do is write articles for a, a popular um uh audience and um you mentioned in a in in um, I think the book before this most uh, recent one, uh, t- talking about violent um, video games, which um, sparked a, you know, I'll put my cards on the table. I have occasionally been known to play <laughs> of some violent video games. But it struck me as a, like there are two different sort of main types of violence that I see in, in that type of media. You know, you have some, you have games which are incredibly gory, but in a way such that like it becomes almost like n- n- cartoonish or even nonsensical, you know. And then you have other games which are not nearly as bloody in terms of like the depiction of what they're doing, but then the, they they serve basically as like military propaganda. You know, they they there was a whole long series of games in like the Call of Duty franchise and uh, Modern Warfare and um, Battlefield, um, which had you know, you're 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 sort of clicking on things from very long distance away and like making them fall over. You know, it's like a sort of tin, uh, like shooting down the tin ducks type of actual gameplay. But what what it what the politics of it was neoconservative imperialism, basically, and the and the idea that the military is really cool and what you should you know and that. Uh, the Middle East is full of brown people that just need to be massacred all the time for unclear reasons. And so, Mm. you know, I have like simplistic thoughts, I guess, about that. But I was wondering if you had any, you know, any ideas about what like, if, if there's, if those are serving different kinds of things, if one is, you know, obviously I think the military shooter stuff is worse, but, I'm not really uh, uh, super, you know, it's just sort of my instinctive reaction to the two. 
Um, mm-hmm. So any thoughts about well, like, I, I that think, distinction? Mm-hmm. I, I think, um, so in terms of dealing with these representations of violence, I don't necessarily subscribe to the idea that uh, populations are, are now so kind of bombarded with such images and representations of violence that we've become kind of domesticated or completely sanitized to it, right? Mm. So I, in many senses, I agree with Jacques Roncier when he says that actually, if you look at it, we don't see enough violence on our television mm. sets, the real violence, mm. right? So actually what we, ha- what we have is actually... Um, a very clear domestication of the regimes of suffering. So, mm. um, so the visceral, raw realities of violence we actually don't see enough of. Right? Um, so, I, I do agree with him to that. Now, in terms of then, you know, where this takes us in terms of popular culture or entertainment, we know violence is part of the entertainment industry. Violence sells. We we know that, right? Um, and indeed, you know, you can look at Donald Trump. You know, he's learned from the spectacle of wrestling. You talk about the spectacle, right? You know, we know this stuff works and it sells. Now, to me, what's important, as you rightly point out, Brian, is it's not so much that the fact that this violence exists in the public domain. It's precisely the ethics of its message or what it's trying to do in terms of communicate a certain kind of landscape of the political. Now, in you know, I'm certainly not somebody who would say, well, you know, the best thing to do is to remove all these representations of violence from the public sphere, right? So I think actually in terms of in terms of developing a pedagogical critique of violence. We need to, as the artist Gottfried Hallwein says, we need to confront more the intolerability of violence, mm. right? So, and whether that's in terms of, you know, Hollywood films or whether it's in art or whether it's in the gaming industry, it's not going to wish itself away. What we need to do is develop a better ethics around how we engage and develop and program the logics of these things. Mm. Now, and also, I think it's also worth bearing in mind as well um, as if you, you know somebody who watches a film or somebody who engages with one of these games, I think you know it's not a universal experience, right? So the, the engagement with the space, and you know, I'm, I'm taken by you know um, Michael Shapiro has written a lot about what he calls cinematic heterotopia, and the idea that you know it's it's almost like Tarkovsky's point that you know. A book read by a thousand different people is a thousand different books, mm. right? The same is the, for, for a cinema, you know. You yes. and, and I often would would teach. You know, I would often teach Catherine Bigelow's films. Mm-hmm. I'm not a fan of her work in the slightest, but they're brilliant to deconstruct, right? right? right. So sometimes the most awful films to me are, are the helpful. best ones to the teach, right? Because you can kind of say, you know, that there's something in this that we can really unpack. And I think the same for the for the games. Now, you know, and I, I know about you know the. The history in terms of games and recruitment and you know one of the questions we can ask about the game in sector of course you know one of the things the difference between a game and a film is you actively participate in the violence right so you there is that active participation in the engagement with violence but i think one of the questions around then the game is you know who or what is allowed to die right mm. it's not just who can be killed but who's allowed to die? Right? I remember there was like it was a scandal about a game which came out where you know you could assume the position of the Taliban, right, and you could kill American soldiers, you know, and that was seen as taboo, right? Yes. So, so why is it that, that certain things are allowed to die in games and be killed in a certain way, but others are not? So there is a kind of you know there's a narrative around what's acceptable and unacceptable in those terrains. So. And, and implicit in all that is a designation of who's hum, who's human and who's not human, right? And that there's these 
right? It's implicitly um, something that you you kind of take in as you enjoy the game. You you kind of um, take in those assumptions into your own enjoyment. Mm-hmm. Yeah, maybe you can answer this one. You know, I, I don't know enough about the games, but you know the ones I've kind of looked at in terms of when you see the death of you know other kind of figures. Um, there seems to be no agency in the death, right? So it's almost like you're killing a zombie, right? And there's that kind of, and maybe there's no coincidence why the the war games also explode alongside these zombie games because you know the thing about a zombie is it has no political agency, it has no capacity for love, it has no none of those qualities which would render it human. So you know we we know from you know the studies in terms of history one of the easiest ways of killing a person is to render them inhuman and. And that is the denial of political agency in that. So I think there's there's something in that that we really need to be more attentive to. Yeah, I um, there's, I am not sure that 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 there's like a lot of philosophical work about this, but there is one one game in particular which I think it would be very interesting for, you know, if if people. Uh, listeners are, are are interested in this kind of like critical perspective it, it's a one from like 2012 i believe and it's called a uh, spec ops the line right very macho military sounding name but it's um it it takes the form in the first sort of couple of hours of just exactly like one of these regular uh, military shooters and then slowly pulls the rug out from under you as a player to like instead of this being this sort of like fantasy of omnipotent conquest of all these sort of helpless you know uh evil brown people you commit horrible atrocities and you feel awful it's a very it's a very compelling like uh experience but it's not fun at all you know and and um you 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 it's the the sort of perspective that it inculcates through your participation in it is that that military intervention is uh you know tends to end up with lots you killing lots of people by accident or on purpose and dehumanizing yourself and becoming this sort of monster and um you know very very interesting and compelling certainly i don't think it was a huge commercial success but uh, if you know you're looking for something mm-hmm. that's like the wire of video games, that's in that same sort of like tradition. I would say, maybe not as much of a masterpiece, but it was very good. I would say. Um, yeah, we can move on. So yeah, I mean, it, it just r- reminds me of what what you wrote about Michael Haneke and uh, funny games and the way that violence can be used uh, and how art can use violence to to show people how intolerable it should be, right? Yeah. Yeah, well, well, yeah, that, well, that's Hanukkah's point. You know, the, the perfect scene in a film is the one you can't watch, right? Yeah. He says, you know, if people turn away in disgust, I know I've done justice to the ethical subject of violence because it should be intolerable, right? You, you should turn away, you know. Um, and it was like that, you know, that, that awful film which Mel Gibson made. Um, but it still had that kind of, you know, watching of Christ being tortured in that way. After 10 minutes, you just turn it off. You, you think this is just intolerable. But maybe that's the way it should be, you that's know. Right. And I think there's there's something there's something in that because violence should be intolerable, um, and I think it forces you to confront it in that way. I, I was wondering, Ryan, did you want to go ahead? No. Uh, if we if we might shift to the role of of capitalism uh, and its relationship to violence, and um, I, I think that might be something that might end up getting us to fascism. In fact, but we'll see uh, where you take it. Uh, I, I know that we we've talked about uh, violence 
perhaps not just being um, the spectacular and, and perhaps being um, something that people don't consider violence very often, uh, homelessness and other things, because of the work being done uh, by power to frame what is and what isn't violence in certain ways that, that have certain motives and aims. Um, so what is the relationship, do you think, between uh, capitalism and the aims of capitalism uh, globally and, and that? Mm-hmm. Well, I, th- I think you know we, we know capitalism goes through various stages of its development, and the, con- the the relationship between capitalism and violence, I think, has been well documented by a whole number of brilliant scholars. Um, we know for, since its very inception, you know, capitalism is understood in terms of global capitalism and. The great advance of global capitalism correlates with the emergence of colonization, which, you know, Rosa Luxemburg wrote a lot about as being accumulation through dispossession. Franz Fanon understood all too well that correlation between the history of capitalist development and the history of racial persecution. And indeed, I think there is something in that argument around, you know, racism really begins through the global slave trade and the commodification of life, which really gives rise to one of the most valuable commodities at the time, which is, you know, the the selling of human bodies. And we know then the selling of human bodies takes many different forms after that. Mm. Um, So from its very inception, capitalism has been violent Um, and it's had a distinct relationship to violence and we forget then in terms of historically how the change in nature of capitalist development has kind of corresponded with the worst episodes of human history you know you only have to think for instance of the ways in which uh, the writings of Anna Arendt when she talks about the origins of totalitarianism which begins out of which for her emerges from colonization and for her you know for her for instance what uh, the holocaust represented was effectively europe making a colony of itself mm. so we know under the, again under the auspices of capitalism the overseas you know we experimented a lot in terms of you know the concentration camps and so forth and then in, in, imported that logic back to europe mm. so so in that sense there is that um capitalist connection historically. Now, in terms of then the latest phase of capitalist development, um, what we might call neoliberalism, I think neoliberalism is, as we know, um, constantly speeds up the capitalist process. And through the act of speeding up, we are constantly exposed to the production of disposable populations, populations which have no use, no value in the system. Now, that in itself is a form of structural violence. And we also know to maintain this system of capitalist development and to maintain those inequalities requires a great deal of actual violence. It's perhaps no coincidence that, you know, the first kind of um, test area for what we might call neoliberalism today happened in the Pinochet's Chile. Right? Mm. And we know that this system of um, capitalist development requires actually a very distinct and strong authoritarian state. And mm. and in that sense, you know, we already detect in the Pinochet's Chile the, the transformation in what the nation state was going to become. Now, the nation state today, to me, serves nothing more than a military and policing function for the forces of global capitalism. Mm. And so in that sense, there is a, there's a definite correlation there. And, you know, we know then the project kind of gets exported under Reaganomics. It gets, comes to Thatcherism in the UK. 
all of which again were remarkably violent internally upon their own populations as much as externally. So, so I think that, that history of capitalist development is also a history of a distinct logic of violence, which is, and the, the thing about capitalism is, and the way it, in which it operates in the world today, um, I think there's, there's a number of points in terms of what, how capitalism operates in the world today. The first thing capitalism is able to do very effectively is disassociate any responsibility for actions. So the system is, you know, as we know, by definition is complex. So how can we kind of say, well, if somebody buys a pair of trainers or a pair of sneakers, you're complicit in the servitude of, a, you know, of children in India, right? We, it's very difficult to make those direct connections between the persecution of some and the commodification for others. And I, so I think that those lines are, are very complex. But one of the things which I do find I think fascinating about the current phase of capitalist development, which I kind of think, you know, as we can sense traces of it post 9-11, but it's certainly been part of this new age of austerity, is the ways in which global leaders today have seemingly abandoned a certain vision of globalization and are now asking for populations to now vote for your own containment. Mm. And I think there is something interesting about this contemporary phase of capitalism, which is basically, it's making a naked appeal once again to nationalism. But it's something about the reconfiguration of global politics, where, you know, you now have all these very wealthy elites trying to present themselves as resistive figures of the people. <laughs> and they're kind of, you know, resisting the forces of a liberal globalization and asking populations to vote for their own containment, whether it's Bush about building the walls in America or Brexit in the UK. And people often forget when people say, well, build the wall. It's not just about keeping strangers out. It's about keeping people within as well. right? And so I, I think, you know, there's... Um, and this was understood by Kafka in his wonderful book on the Great Wall of China. You know, the Great Wall of China was not about the fear of the barbarians outside. It was about keeping people in, right? So, <laughs> so there's something in this. And, and, I, th and I think this, this idea then of, of, you know, of the changing nature of global capitalism today is we often think about the likes of Trump and Brexit as, a, as about this language of sovereignty without, to me, thinking about what does that mean for the contemporary nature of global capitalism and the violence through which it's now appealing. And that violence is all about a new phase of containment. And, and I think, you know, we can only, to me, understand this in an age where austerity actually now seems to be permanent. You know, in terms of we look at the 20th century, there was this kind of, you know, deluded belief in unlimited progress. Nobody believes that today. And actually, you know, in this age of sustainability and the sustainability of a certain austerity, it seems that the biggest fear now that we have today is that we're all going to be going south, right? That we're all going to become like the global south. So let's just simply preserve what we have. And and that there is something of almost like a dystopian realism at work in this you could some people would say it's the it's the end stage of capitalism. I don't know about that, but I think you know I do think that Frederick Frederick Jameson's right when he says, you know, we, we've got ourselves into such a tragedy where it's easier to now imagine the end of the world and the end of capitalism. And I think there's something in that which really needs you know serious philosophical attention. <laughs> Indeed, although I didn't realize we, we would maintain that uh, aphorism by making the end of the world approach much more quickly. <laughs> 
I think I think we can imagine the end of, a wor- of the world quite easily now. And, and I thought it was it was the, the difficulty in getting people to realize capitalism isn't uh, isn't the be all end all, and we can get past it. That 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 would be the challenge. But I didn't realize we'd we'd work on the end, other end of the phrase so quickly. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, I uh, that's all very interesting. Um, and it it, it brings up. I, uh, inspires a question about what you know. You 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 talk about the nation state, um, you know, as being like basically just this sort of uh, <clears throat> you know global policeman type of uh, institution uh, under you know neoliberal capitalism. Do you think that the 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 structure of like the state could 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 change? Could become different? Um, you know, maybe back to uh, it was like the one thing that economists tell 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 us. You know, like the kind of um, heterodox economists that I tend to read about austerity is that you don't actually have to do it. You know, like this is a pointless and in fact destructive policy in terms of the like productive capacities of of these countries. You know, like uh, um. United States, you know, maybe in a counterfactual where we didn't have austerity would have a GDP that's like three trillion dollars higher than than it is now. You know, that's bigger than the GDP of California. Um, and so do you think that, um, you know, could, could you imagine a, a nation state uh, or a state, whatever you want to call it, the sort of existing you know, structure of the state and the bureaucracy and, you know, voting population and so forth that wasn't, that was more egalitarian and tried to, like, limit violence or or instead of, like, you know, promoting it or using it as, like, a disciplinary uh, uh, tactic or however, you know, all these uh, various things. Well, I think in terms of... um the nature of the state. You know, I, I was really struck um, when uh, doing some previous research on the, the Zapatistas in Mexico when they said they were trying to engage in the peace process of the Mexican state. And Subcomandante Marcos said, when we went to the negotiations, we realized the state wasn't there. Hmm. There was nobody to negotiate with. Hmm. In other words, the Mexican state had no authority to make the kind of decisions over which the peace process kind of depended. And you've seen the same kind of narrative kind of come out with Evo Morales as well in Bolivia, right? He was constantly saying, I'm just locked into capitalism. I'm trying to make changes, but these things don't happen. Now, I'm, you know, I'm certainly not a defender of national socialism in so much as I think the history of national socialism, as much as capitalism has been deeply violent. And and we need to be have an acute, you know, understanding of the history of that. Now, one of the things which I think, you know, onto your point around can, is there something to rescue out of the nation state? And, you know, you, you look, for instance, in the UK today, there's this, um, you know, the, the Labour Party is trying to reinvent itself, arguably trying to, you know, overcome the legacies of Tony Blair. And you have Jeremy Corbyn in power, who's a good old fashioned socialist, right? And as a result of this, you have in, you know, the criticisms of that kind of system is it's deeply sexist, it's deeply racist, it has a history of anti-Semitism. Now, on the one hand, I would say Jeremy Corbyn as a figure has probably stood on the right side of history for a lot of stuff, right? Sure. But that doesn't detract from the fact that these institutions are patriarchal they are 
deeply racist in the way in which they operate. And I think we can't forget that history of a very real, like for instance in the UK, very clear structural anti-Semitism. It is a reality that needs to be, you know, recognised. Now, but beyond that, I think we also need to, you know, I'm fully in agreement with the late Zygmunt Bauman when he said, there's no 20th century solutions to 21st century problems. Mm. Uh, mm. The the nation state, you know, we kind of think about it as this inviolable political entity, but in the history of the human condition, it's only kind of been around for 300 years, right? And even less so really in terms of the modern nation state, there's nothing natural or inevitable to it. And I think historically the nation state has done more harm than good, you know. Um, and I'm, I'm often reminded when you, you talk about you know, nation states and nationalism of that wonderful quote by George Orwell when he says, you know, nationalism is nothing more than the habit of categorizing human beings like insects. So blocks of millions or tens of millions can be conveniently labeled good or bad. Mm. And I'm, I'm in agreement with him on this. You know, the, the great division of the world is predicated still on this national model. And I think in that sense, nationalism and the nation state, because we still, you know... Um, there was that, you know, the thing that Michel Foucault said, you know, in thought and political practice, we're still yet to cut the head off the king, right? Mm -hmm. We still can't think outside of these sovereign conditions. And I think what's needed for the 21st century is desperately is a new political imagination. And I think by still wedding ourselves to the nation state, we delude ourselves into the promise of a, of a power which is not there or a system of empowerment which is not there. Um, but does that mean to say that change can't happen? I, of course not, right? Because... We know there's enough resources in the world to fix all the problems we encounter. <laughs> yes. There's just not the political will. That's right. right. You know, we only need to demilitarize the investment in the U.S. military to fix, you know, education and health care for, for all. <laughs> right. So it's not as if these resources don't right. exist. It's just the political will doesn't exist to create this more peaceful world. So I did have one question, actually, um, and, it, and it has to do... Um, not a super specific question, but I, I was just, you know, thinking about violence and, and, you know, the like recent American history, uh, you know, there, there is this, it, I thought of the Columbine massacre, which was, which happened when I was in like middle school, uh, which, you know, just consumed attention all, you know, national media for like weeks and weeks. And nowadays, you know, the, the, it seems like the rate of those, and I think that empirically demonstrated that the rate of those sorts of massacres has really accelerated even in the last couple of years so that they're happening like once a week and it's getting to the point to where like you know at a at a like it was just for a while you know non-stop coverage of this massacre then this massacre then this massacre and it seems in recent months to have just kind of dropped off the attention radar altogether it was like it's a one, you know, 10 people are killed in some shooting. It's a one day story mm -hmm. and then people move on. Mm -hmm. And I guess the, the, you know, what is that doing to our kind of collective, you know, political unconscious mm -hmm. uh, or however you might define it? Cause it, it seems like something's going on there and I can't really put a, put a like word on it, but it doesn't seem healthy. Mm. Yeah. Well, I, I think you know, there, there was, um, when like when Ballard, J.G. Ballard, 
kind of sensed this happening when he wrote the atrocity exhibition, right? And, and he kind of says, you know, what happens at the level of our consciousness when we switch on the TV screen and we see, you know, an advertisement for deodorant, somebody landed on the moon, somebody been pulled from a car crash, somebody been the victim of a mass shooting, right? And I think part of the issue or the problem um, is in the age of new media technologies that, you know, on any given day, there are so many atrocities in which we can kind of be exposed to. Um, but there's also, in terms of the ethics of the way the media, I guess, perhaps operates, because we live in this age where, as um, Paul Virilio says, you know, speed has conquered space, right? There is no time to reflect anymore. There is no time to, because we're on to the next story, the next occurrence, the next incident, right? And even though those incidents might look the same, there's kind of like, you know, a banalization now through the repetition. So, you know, you lose sight of how many times you see politicians in America offering their thoughts and prayers, right? What, what, you know, what does this mean, right? Um, and, you know, I, I, I can, you know, you can look horrified that, you know, you switch in on the news and it, as you say, it seems like yet another mass shooting in the United States of America. Um, and there is something there which, you know, I don't think people get fatigued by it, but I think they get exhausted by it, especially if there doesn't seem to be any viable change, right? If if you think, well, okay, this is just another one of these events happening, I know what the politicians are going to say, I know the NRA is not going to change their position, I know the power and influence they have, so another massacre is going to happen, right? And And it must become, you know, for the media, that must be very fatiguing too and very exhausting too in terms of, okay, you know, okay, we're reporting on another one of these cases. We have all these people crying on the television, all these people talking about the loss of their children. What actually is it going to take for a different discussion to happen? Short of maybe Trump walking around himself with an AK-47 rifle, committing a mass murder, right? But even then you kind of think, well, you know, what's go what does it take in America to have a different conversation on gun ownership? You know, what kind of atrocity is going to have to happen for that to occur. And you kind of think, well, if the ones that have happened don't do that, then, you know, I've got no idea what would happen. And you see the same happened with the migrant crisis in Europe, right? You, you know, for nearly a year, every day you would switch on the television set and there'd be more stories or cases of bodies washed up on the beaches of Mediterranean cities, um, islands, you know, often rep represented as, you know, what are the Brits now going to do for their holidays, right? So there was that kind of narrative which was perniciously underlying it. The migrant crisis just doesn't appear in the British media at all today. And even though we know the bodies are still dying by the hundreds crossing the Mediterranean, right? And I think there is something then that we need. It's not, I, I don't think it's about fatigue. I don't think it's about people just become sensitized to it because... You watch any of these stories, they're as horrifying as the last, right? The, the, the mother talking about the death of a young child is as horrifying as the last one. But the fatigue comes in when we think there's not going to be any political change. And I think that's where people just kind of say, well, you know, what can I do? Right? I, there's nothing, I, I feel incapable of affecting those fundamental conditions of violence, which seem to be not only affecting other people, but could potentially affect my life too. So better not to think about it. 
That makes a lot of sense. Yeah, I think uh, effectively we need to be concerned with, uh, you know, as Spinoza would point out, whether it's despair or hope. And because what you feel effectively will decide whether you feel energy to move and have the will to do something or not, or whether you think it's uncertain to do anything and therefore you might as well just let it pass. Well, I think that's, you know, that, that's part of the, you know, we talk about like impotent leaders. Often people can feel kind of impotent in the face of the raw realities of violence, right? So how do we meaningfully respond to it, especially when the response to violence seems to be more violence, right? You know, I've got no idea what it would even mean to teach the courses I teach walking into the classroom with a gun. How could I even possibly begin to think of that, right? Where, you know, and... And in that sense, I think, you know, we need to have a much more broader understanding of and serious conversation about what type of world we live in. And especially whether, you know, the only way to confront violence is violence, because that seems to me where precisely a lot of the discourse is today. And it's it's a pernicious discourse and it's a discourse which is completely nihilistic. Yeah, the... uh... My uh, my fiance is from from Texas, and she went to the University of Texas at Austin, and they have uh, open carry. They had open carry on campus there, so you could you could take your gun to, to class. And the professors fought that tooth and nail, and I think they eventually got it to where so you know certain uh, certain buildings at least are off limits for for guns legally. But it was just like, good lord. Yeah. What what a nightmare! Yeah, yeah. We we need uh, to educate our desires, and and instead of um, right Thanatos, we need more Eros. We need more love. We need more hope. We need more um, feeling. That's not simply the feeling of either despair or annihilation. And so, hopefully, collectively, we we can yeah. do that. Well, yeah, you can imagine if you introduced an open carry system in any university, you know, the first thing you'd have to ban is caffeine, right? <laughs> <laughs> how do you? But how do you even kind of? I, I I've got no idea what that space looks like from a pedagogical perspective. What you know? Um, sure. How you would even possibly begin to engage with those questions? You know, what would it mean to teach a week on the Israel-Palestine conflict when you have a class full of students with guns? I've got I've got no idea what that would possibly look like. I think there's something insightful about that because in the classroom, you need to be able to have people feel like they can be vulnerable and intimate in order to learn together and think through things and connect and relate to each other. So if it's impossible to learn in the classroom that way, well, of course, as a collective, as a polis, as a society, when we have all this violence and fear around us, it's it's that much harder to do that at a, at a larger scale, yeah. right? But it just creates frontier land conditions, right? And the frontier land, you know, what does it mean that the universities are frontier land? I don't know, but you know, well, we know it'll end up becoming more violent. Yeah. 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 We can all look forward to teaching, uh, you know, classes from behind a big pile of sandbags, you know, with the, with the, with <laughs> yeah, those or, helmets. You know, on. You'll have uh, kind of like the, the police two way mirror and you'll have the, like kind of a, a calm that you can talk to the class through and so yeah. you can protect yourself. From well, the... apparently the future's hologram lecturers anyway, so we'll, right. oh, I guess that makes you oh. bullet, the bulletproof a, in one way or another. <laughs> another, de- another depressing topic for a different time, perhaps. Yeah. <laughs> Neoliberalism and education, yeah. right? Um, I think that's all the questions we have. Um, I th- maybe we maybe we can close up if you want to uh, 
if you want to tell us about this uh, new book that that just came out, anything you want to mention about that, um, you know, to yep. again, it's called uh, Violence: uh, Humans in Dark Times, which is an apt title. Uh, you and Natasha Leonard interviewed uh, some wonderful thinkers and artists, and I've just received it yesterday. But I've I've dug in, and there's some some great discussions here uh, from the philosophical, uh, it's accessible for, for people, but also uh, implicates lots of interesting uh, ideas. Um, so is there, is there anything you'd like to say about it? Yeah, well, I guess the, the, the book to me really represents what I think is hopefully a the start point for a possible response to um, the question of how do we deal with the pedagogical challenges of violence. And I think a lot of what I hope is the strengths of the book is precisely in its method. So um, mm. the book started mm. out as um, uh, I was interviewed by Natasha for the New York Times as part of the Stone column for my own kind of thinking on violence. And we quickly realized that there was um, the need for a much broader conversation about what what actually constituted violence in the first place and to try to think through some of the the multiple ways in which violence appears to us and the ways in which we might be able to connect them from the individual to the systemic. And yeah. and I guess through this, you know, we started, you know, the initial uh, process was through interviewing what I thought was some of the more interesting critical thinkers who were dealing with the question of violence, but then to extend it out more broadly to deal precisely with artists, film directors, writers, and to try to say that they all have this, you know, this equal voice in terms of violence, in terms of critiquing violence. Mm. And I think if the, you know, to me, if the book does anything in terms of, you know, not only providing some, you know, what I think are really interesting engagements with some really truly brilliant thinkers and creative producers in there, um, is to really insist upon the need for a transdisciplinary conversation. Mm. And, and a transdisciplinary conversation in a way which is not excluding of anybody. Right? Mm. Now, I think one of the, you know, we know there's a violence to exclusion. So if we are going to critique violence in the contemporary period, we do need to insist upon this need for transdisciplinary engagement mm. to recognize that everybody has an equal voice and an equal concern on this planet. And how do we construct the necessary forums in which we can give everybody an equal voice in terms of mm. critiquing violence and recognizing in that sense that, you know, it does require drawing upon multiple sources from, you know, as I say, from whether it's just critical theory or the arts, humanities, social sciences, and much further beyond that. So, yeah. Wonderful. Well, I'm looking forward to reading it and, and very excited to, uh, to tell the listeners uh, about it as well. And if, um, if Disposable Futures is, is any uh, sign, I'm, I'm going to be spending a lot of time highlighting and underlining and thinking through uh, the ideas on offer. <laughs> Okay, that's the first half of the interview, and um, that's it for now. But to you know, keep from cluttering up your podcast uh, inbox, we're gonna we're gonna split it into two sections, and so stay tuned for part two, fascism, coming to a theater near you. In a couple days, or in, in yeah, I don't know, soon. <laughs> Whenever we get around publishing it. <laughs>